everyone, and welcome back to the Steam Forward podcast. As always, I'm your host, Savannah, and today our guest is Dr. Shireen Rahimi, and she is not only a National Geographic explorer, but she is an ocean videographer and photographer. She's a marine biologist and as well as a storyteller. So please help us welcome our guest, Dr. Shireen. Hello. So good to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So you just gave a presentation to the kids. How do you feel? Sometimes it can be a humbling experience. I'm surprised that I got nervous up there. I know. Like these kids look so bright and they were so focused and engaged. I was like, I better better bring it. Yeah. And sometimes in your brain, you think, am I doing good? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I love that. But I think they loved it. I always know when they love something, when they ask a lot of questions after. I was like, there are a lot of questions. Yeah. I was very honored. Yes, we love that. So, Dr. Shereen, give us some of your background. Like, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I, um, my, both of my parents are from Iran, mm-hmm. and they came to California. And they, I was born and raised in Northern California in the Bay Area yeah. near San Francisco. And um, I grew up going in the oceans of San Francisco, which are frigid. That they are. When I went, I did not go in the water when I went to California. Good call. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, I love them, but it took a lifetime of being mm-hmm. in that water to really love it. Um, and then I, from there, I, you know, I always thought I wanted to be in the medical field because my dad was in the medical field and I always wanted to do something that helped other people because I figured what better way to spend your time. And then um, I slowly fell in love with coral reefs. Mm -hmm. I just saw video and photos of them and I thought they were so gorgeous. I saw my first healthy coral reef uh, when I was 11 years old. And I think that image is just like imprinted into my brain where I was like, there are literal rainbows underwater right now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so when I, after I finished school, um, I studied environmental science in my undergrad. I decided to go to the University of Miami to do my PhD and study coral reefs in Cuba because it was the perfect intersection of the things that I'm most interested in, which, which is um, anthropology, so the study mm-hmm. of how people interact with their, uh, you know, just how people live, and then uh, incorporating the ocean, so coral reefs. And um, I worked in Cuba for two years um, studying coral reefs and the ways that people were interacting with those coral reefs, especially in the context of um, a socialist, uh, you know, governing structure. Yeah. And so that's kind of what started me on this path. Yeah. Are you first generation? American yeah yeah wow so how is so a lot of our viewers are usually because they're from Haiti or Jamaica or like one of the South American countries so how is that like for you and finding an identity in this world good question so I yeah it wasn't like I don't think I had a very conventional path within Mm -hmm. the underwater storytelling uh you know kind of field I both my parents are from Iran, from mm-hmm. the desert in Iran. Yeah. And so I'm the first person in both sides of my family to do any kind of work with the ocean. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, obviously a lot of people in this field do not look like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, you know, being the child of immigrants, it was always kind of like, OK, you know, your job is either doctor or scientist. <laughs> and you don't really have any other. Job, yeah. Unless you want to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and those fields it didn't really speak to me, you know, mm-hmm. the more I grew up and the more that I spent time in nature and mm-hmm. the more I kind of like tried to listen to what my heart was telling me that I wanted yeah. to do. And um, 
I was always really into photography. And so I kind of eventually realized like, oh, I don't have to follow the path that everyone else has laid out for me. Yeah, I can figure out ways to kind of combine the things that I love. And so when I did my PhD, I, I started combining photography with science. And that's mm -hmm. kind of how I got to where I am today. I love that. And I'm pretty sure when you show your work now, they're like, oh, I never knew. Right. They love it. Yeah. Now. Yeah. It took a it took a little bit of yeah. convincing, but they are so proud of me. Now. I love that. Yeah. So why did you get into photography? Well, I've been taking photos since I was probably like 11 or 10 years mm -hmm. old. I got a little digital camera and I thought it was like the coolest <laughs> yeah. thing ever. I was like, I felt so cool for having that and I just loved it. And then my grandpa got me an analog film camera when I was like 15, I think. Um, and I, I don't know what it is about photography. I think it's really special. It like just, you know, freezing a moment in time. I think there's something so special about that and the way that, um, it really shows your own subjectivity as a person, what you yeah. choose to capture, right? Like mm -hmm. everyone will photograph a, a, the same scene in a million different ways. Absolutely, yeah. And um, and I think also as a scientist, it's really interesting to me the power of photography and how it can be just as important a tool as the written word or numbers yeah. as a way of collecting data about our environment and mm -hmm. and how and as a way of basically understanding how our world is changing right. and how we're adapting to the changes in that world. Right. So what is your goal with your filmmaking in your photos for people to understand? My goal um, is to tell stories that inspire change in our society, mm -hmm. behavioral change in individuals that collectively results in social change. Right. And the reason that is my goal is because as a scientist, you know, I was doing a lot of science, obviously, yeah. writing a lot. Yeah. And um, when I started taking photos and videos underwater and creating films, I realized that the films that I was making were getting so much more attention and engagement mm -hmm. than the science that I was doing. And I know the power and importance of science. And I felt like, OK, well, what better way for me to you know, make an impact in conservation and the preservation of our oceans than to tell the stories of these scientists and the scientists that they're doing and also the stories of people that are depending on the ocean for their livelihood. So with my work, it's really, I'm, I'm really trying to fill this need that I've identified of mm -hmm. like effective storytelling about nature because yeah. a lot of the storytelling up until a couple like decades ago was like, mm -hmm. you know, all wildlife, right? Like animals and that's it. Animals and their surroundings. And oftentimes there was wild things happening between animals and humans, but it was just purposely cut out because, yeah. because that was the way that, that's the way that we have historically thought about telling stories about nature, but that's not what nature is. Nature is humans and animals coexisting and that's yes. what it's always been. And so I think an important part of under, of like, getting to a place where we can more live in more harmony with nature is imagining what that looks like, right? Yeah. Like we need to tell stories that imagine, you know, what does that harmonious coexistence between humans and animals look like? Yeah. And what are the solutions that will get us there? Because yeah. if we can't imagine it, it won't happen. Right. Words are words, but pictures are worth a million words that somebody could never say. I was telling that to Pastor and I was like, especially with kids, like, well, you want them to get it. You want them to understand it. You got to captivate them. 
And people talking doesn't necessarily captivate an average human. It doesn't captivate me. And I don't consider myself a 12-year-old. So I love that. I love storytelling. I love pictures. I love videos. Well, it's it's programmed into our mm-hmm. brains. Like we evolved to remember stories because that is how we were able to survive. Like if right. we, mm-hmm. if we, if someone told us a story about a hunt that they had done, you know, mm-hmm. in another region or something, we could remember that and use that information to hunt more to to yeah. sustain ourselves, right? right? So we are like evolutionarily programmed to remember stories and to relate to stories when they are told to us to put ourselves in that position. And I think mm-hmm. that is why film is the most powerful medium that we have mm-hmm. to drive social change. And that is why I became a filmmaker. I love that. My question, my next question was, what was um, an experience that really pushed you into ocean conservation? Um, because you could just take be taking photos of a beautiful ocean but the reality is that you're showing how beautiful it is because it needs our help it needs our protection it needs change right with this climate change and coral bleaching so was there one experience you could think of um yeah I mean I think there are many that built up over time but one that was really formative was that moment I told you when I saw a coral reef for the first time that was healthy and I think at that I think at that moment my mind it almost felt like my mind was playing tricks on me because Mm -hmm. what I was looking at was so beautiful and so kaleidoscopic and the light moving through the water and creating rainbows on the bottom of the ocean Mm -hmm. floor and a school of squid swam by I had never seen squid in the ocean before the water was crystal clear Mm -hmm. and all the coral were all these different colors and it kind of just it felt like an underwater version of a city right Mm -hmm. so like everything is so bustling and so colorful and Mm -hmm. you know these two fish are kind of swimming around each other in circles and this one is being territorial with this one and then the squid are swimming by and the sharks come by and all the fish kind of slightly angle their bodies towards the shark to like you know it's like all these little micro interactions and I think it really kind of exposed or revealed to me the interconnectedness of all things Mm -hmm. and and how like if I if I dedicate my life to trying to protect the oceans and spread the word about the oceans then I'm really dedicating my life to protecting my own life because Without the oceans, we are nothing, right? Nothing. Our oxygen comes from the oceans. Our food comes from the oceans. Um, the oceans collapse. We collapse as a species. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned sharks. So uh, you shared with us a video. So can you tell us some of the things you did with, you know, it is Shark Week, like with Shark Fest on National Geographic and Shark Week? Yeah, so um, last year I was on Shark Fest uh, National Geographic Shark Fest. I was in one of their episodes. I brought um, I brought a crew out to the Bahamas where I did my PhD research on spear fishers who have fished in the coral reefs in the Bahamas for generations. Which means that they basically take boats out and they have um, they have hookahs, so they uh, breathe air through hoses that are attached to the boat, and they go down and they shoot fish, and then they bring the fish up to the boat. That's how they make their living. It's one of right. the most effective ways to make a living in the Bahamas besides being a construction worker. Um, and so these people are coming into sharks, into contact with sharks every day. I know because I was out there with them <laughs> with yeah. my camera. Um, and 
The Bahamas, the Bahamas is one of the sharkiest places in the world. And so, really? yeah, there are a lot of sharks there. And when you're killing fish, you're putting blood in the water. Mm-hmm. So basically, we would go down, they would kill fish, we would come up and we would run the boat to the next location because we we're basically always trying to outrun our blood trail. Because when you're shooting, you're right. putting blood in the water. Mm-hmm. And so we brought um, a crew, a Nat Geo crew out there to do some storytelling about mm-hmm. how these fishers are have come up with uh, techniques to avoid sharks in the water. Right. Because after you do it for that long, you come up with tips and tricks to <laughs> kind of avoid getting yeah, uh, encounters with sharks. And so that was that episode. And then we did a profile on my work um, around that episode where I brought in Dr. Catherine McDonald, who is a University of Miami shark researcher. And she, uh, because they were like, can we do a profile on your work about sharks? I was like, well, Honestly, I don't really know that much about sharks. Right. My specialty is coral. So I brought in Dr. McDonald because she's an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went on her boat and we did some tagging. Um, I was bitten by a shark in on a shoot uh, that previous, like a few months before. And so... Um, and so I, I kind of like wanted to get out again in the water with a researcher um, who was doing shark tagging because I was I was bitten on a shark tagging project. And yeah. so I wanted to do get back out there with a researcher who was doing shark tagging to kind of show that, you know, sharks are sharks aren't evil. Like yeah. that shark that bit me wasn't mm-hmm. evil. It had no bad intentions. It was just trying to survive, really. And it was yeah. put in a stressful situation. And so. Um, and so we, we went out there on her boat and we tagged some sharks and she showed me the, the techniques she uses to do it in a humane way so mm-hmm. that the shark isn't so stressed out. Um, and that was a really uh, special moment for me to get back out there and do this this work with sharks and kind of like establish like and spread more, spread the word more on mm-hmm. how sharks are critical parts of our coral reef ecosystems. They're so important to a functioning, healthy reef. Um, They play various roles on the reef. And so just to get the word out there that like, it's, you know, it's not the sharks, it's us. Yeah, (laughs) and when you were a bit, were you tagging sharks or were you taking pictures? I was in the water filming researchers who were tagging sharks. Right, so so it just came at you. Well, yeah, they let the shark off the hook and then it swam at me. And um, I, it kind of swam past me and I was like following it with my camera, which is what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it went out of my frame. And so I thought it had swam away, yeah. but then it kind of like curved back. And then kind of bit you. Yeah. I'm I can chest. imagine. So are you still scared of sharks? Are you scared of sharks or do we feel it was just like a one-time experience? I think that was a very rare um, one-time experience, and um, I definitely learned from the experience. Mm-hmm. There's things that I would do differently, um, but I'm not scared of sharks uh, when I'm diving. You know, I've been diving with sharks a lot since then, yeah. and I don't feel scared at all. Um, I, I feel like I play through the moment in my head a lot, and I feel mm-hmm. scared of sharks then, if that makes yeah. sense. But when I'm in the water, I... I've been around so many sharks mm-hmm. in my life and in my career that I don't really feel that way. But um, I think when I have like when I can see underwater, I'm not scared. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. 
It's like if it's really murky or if I'm in California and it's really like hard and I don't have I don't have a mask and I'm surfing or something, then then I'll be a little scared. Yeah. Right. A question that came to my mind is we were studying the biodiversity of different um, reefs. Mm -hmm. And so um, with one of our frost science museum curriculums. And so we studied uh, the Keys, the Dominican Republic and Jamaica. So if you could compare the Keys coral reefs to Bahamas, um, are we doing worse? Are we doing better? Because we're what, doing worse. We're doing really, <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. Um, so they're not as so they're more bleached in Florida. Um, yeah. Well, so bleaching is kind of this like temporary thing that mm-hmm. happens where um, the water gets hot, the corals bleach. Corals are bleaching as we speak mm-hmm. right now in the Florida Keys. Uh, water temperatures are the highest I think they've ever been in recorded history. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we are seeing really bad bleaching right now. Um, which is just an, another reminder that we need to act on the climate crisis, especially here in Florida, like the politicians who are, you know, and like the electricity companies, like FPL, like these people should be ashamed of themselves for what Definitely. they're doing. Um, but I think that um, bleaching is kind of like a, it's like a temporary process. It's mm-hmm. something that happens to corals when they're stressed out. Mm-hmm. What happens after bleaching is what really determines the fate long term of coral reefs, um, or at least in like the short term medium term Um, because if if bleaching if the corals stay in really stressful conditions like high water temperatures or disease after bleaching then they'll die yeah but once a coral bleaches it can still come back to health right that algae can be reintegrated into the coral Um, but uh, yeah so I think the difference between Florida and Bahamian reefs is that the Florida Keys has been exposed because the Florida Keys and and the southern Florida the entire Florida reef tract has been so developed yeah there is so such high human population concentrations along the entire seashore of florida all the way down to key west and so this leads to more pollution in the water you know because of poorly treated sewage yeah um it leads to you know more impacts to reefs Mm -hmm. from fishing um and so the bahamas is much less densely populated it's it's a collection of it's a ton of islands right and a lot of those islands have like no one living on them or a very few people living on them and so if you go to the far northern reaches of the bahamas there's fish everywhere or if you go to the far southern reaches it's like abundant with fish and coral um the one thing the bahamas have going against it is that it's very shallow if you if you think of the word bahamas it means Bahamar, which means shallow waters, mm-hmm. because there's a very shallow continental shelf that the entire island, uh, those islands sit on. And mm-hmm. so when you're in shallow water, the corals have more exposure to sunlight and hotter water, which leads to bleaching. So right. the Bahamas does have much nicer reef left than in than Florida. But an interesting thing is that um, the dry tortugas, which are the southernmost national park in the United States, mm-hmm. which are um, like a few miles uh, west of Key West mm-hmm. is a place in Florida where coral reefs are thriving. Yeah, because there is such low visitation. I think fifty thousand people uh, visit that park every year, right. which is a very low number. Most of those reefs aren't accessed almost ever by tourists because yeah. uh, you need a boat to get there. So, and the and those reefs are doing great. So it just shows that like so many of these impacts is directly correlated to how many people are contacting those places. Right. And so do you think it's possible, like, because you were talking about the legislation, if they put more rules on the tourism, like if you come to our beaches, 
you're expected to do X, Y, and Z. Would that help with the temperatures of the ocean? I think that the real culprit here is less tourism, mm-hmm. um, even though people should, when they're diving, take care not to touch anything. Yeah. Do not touch. Yeah. And when you're scuba diving, keep your distance from the reef so that if you, you know, get off buoyancy and you like, you don't bump the ground, right? right. So you're not breaking coral. Um, but I think it's more an issue of uh, climate change leading mm-hmm. to higher water temperature. That is directly because we are putting carbon in the atmosphere. Right. That there's yeah. no way getting around that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing being overfishing. Yeah. Our waters are severely overfished. Mm-hmm. I do not eat fish in Florida because of that. I think it's really, really sad how empty our waters are, really. Um, and then the other issue um, is wastewater treatment because mm-hmm. we have very outdated. Uh, infrastructure for dealing with wastewater. I don't know if you know this, but I live on South Beach and Mm -hmm. a few days ago we had a boil water notice because there was a pipe burst and obviously that means that sewage is dumping right directly into the ocean because a private developer who was constructing on the beach broke a pipe. These are like issues that you don't expect in the United States and yet they're happening here in Florida. We need to do better. Yeah. We need to treat our water better. Miami Waterkeeper is a nonprofit organization that's doing really great work um, trying to understand better like what the wastewater treatment in Florida looks like and how it can be improved. If you want to do something about it, you can go uh, support their work. Um, But yeah, I I would say like it's a trifecta of increasing water temperature due to carbon emissions, um, uh, pollution going Mm -hmm. straight into our waterways Mm -hmm. um, and uh, overfishing and overfishing. Yeah. We have in our, um, curriculum, it gives you like the best, the alternative and the worst. And it's the U S and Asia, lots of like seafood markets in Asia, they say stay away from. Mm-hmm. And so I was shocked to hear a- Asia cause I've lived there and I was like, really? I was like the oceans weren't doing bad and they were pretty, uh, fruitful, but I guess, you know, over the years it just changes. Yeah, it's kind of sad. A lot of yeah, I, a lot of um, stories of reefs in Asia that are just like completely silent. Yeah, it's yeah. it's insane. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? Um, well, so I just got back from a uh, trip to the field where I was mm-hmm. working in Moorea, French Polynesia, which is an island right next to Tahiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and French Polynesia is a much like the Bahamas, a group of islands in the middle of the South Pacific, so right between Australia and South America. Um, And what I was doing there is I was working on a project with a scientist, uh, Dr. Nessa Silberger. She's a marine ecologist and with an educator, a local educator to the island. Her name is Ayata Richard of Reva Atea. She started a nonprofit called Reva Atea. Um, And I was working with these two very impressive women. Yeah. Uh, We were um, doing... I was doing a story of how the fresh water on the island of Moorea is impacting the coral reefs that um, fringe the island. And so this fresh water comes down as rain, it collects in rivers on the mountains, and then it goes underground and then it bubbles up out onto the reef. Right. And that freshwater system is really natural and very important. You know, that water has nutrients in it that it carries from the land into the sea and that feeds coral reefs. Um, and so this system is really important to study because it's intact and yeah. it's, it's analogous to systems like we have here in Miami mm-hmm. where 
we get our water from the ground, yeah. which basically enters the ground as rainwater. And, right. and then we collect that water and we drink it. Right. right. So um, and our aquifer here is being threatened by uh, pollution and sea level rise due to climate change. And so understanding what that system looks like when it's healthy is mm -hmm. very important to understanding how we can, you know, preserve the systems that Absolutely. we have here that support mm -hmm. millions and millions of people, right? Because it's natural, like they did nothing and the ocean just does it itself. Exactly. It's awesome. We get our water for free from the ground, yeah. right? Like yeah. nature's yeah. gift to us. Yeah. So we need to protect that mm -hmm. um, because that's Literally all we need to live is yeah, water. Absolutely. Um, and so this project uh, was really cool because I got to go there and do um, take photos underwater of the coral and how they're doing and, and the scientists who's doing work out there in the ocean and also worked with this educator, Ayata. We worked with like 30 or so 10-year-olds um, at the local elementary school and that. taught them about the yeah. water cycle. And we took them out in the ocean and showed them the freshwater seeps, like mm -hmm. where the freshwater comes out of the ground. And mm -hmm. for some of these kids, like their backyard, and they never even knew like what this water was that was coming out of the ground. They were just like, oh, I just always noticed that it was colder and like it gibbered, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and so it was really cool to work with some, some kids out there. And they were so mm -hmm. enthusiastic and engaged and that's really what makes me feel uh, hopeful at times like this mm -hmm. when like the reef is just bleaching before our eyes and I feel yeah. so depressed yeah. that um, there are kids that really care and that are really like mm -hmm. motivated to do something. Yeah, we love that. Um, my question about aquifers, from my um, knowledge, aren't they, they're not always the best solution because they have to be built, if I'm not mistaken. Like they take up land, they take up other things. So aquifers, there are like natural aquifers. So the Florida aquifer is a natural aquifer. Uh, it's okay. just groundwater. Right. Right. And then there are man-made aquifers mm -hmm. that, and as a, as someone who doesn't specialize in that, I don't really know much yeah. about that, but I, I could imagine that it can, there can be issues with building yeah. a man-made aquifer because it doesn't have all of the natural, right. you know, systems that nature creates to like Some keep water clean and put a random thing in the ground is like oh this is the aquifer yeah. good luck <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. well I think that you're absolutely amazing and I think that if you need somebody to tell you that you're doing a good job and you're doing great I'm here to tell you that thank I'm you I'm really inspired by you oh. and so we like to end our podcast with the word of the day so if you could just sum up your experiences in one word what would that one word be my one word would be optimism mm -hmm. because um, a lot of people ask me how I can be optimistic. Right. They're kind of incredulous as to how you could do this work and still like wake up yeah. yeah, and get out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for me, it's optimism. I thankfully was blessed with like a certain level of natural optimism that I think has helped me so much in my life because um, if you if you are not optimistic, if you cannot like practice that muscle of optimism, because it really is a skill that you have to practice, um, you, that muscle will never grow. Right. And if you cannot imagine the positive and an improved future that you want to see for yourself and for your kids and for your kids' kids and for your neighbors and your brothers and sisters, your nieces, your nephews, it's never going to happen. And the more that you're able to imagine it, the closer you are to bringing it into reality. Right. 
And really because like, okay, even if, even if it all doesn't work out, right. And we all, we all like perish and the, the earth, up. yeah. And the earth goes on without us and yeah. figures its thing out and thrives, of yeah. course, because that's what the earth does. And we are just a blip in the existence of the whole planet. Right. Even if that doesn't happen, I can look back and be like, well, I did my best, you know, I did what I could and that's all I could really do. And I'm proud of myself for doing that. And I'm yeah. proud of myself for, um, inspiring those around me to feel like that as well. Mm -hmm. So that's what keeps me going every day. Stay optimistic. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time and joining us, not only to talk to the kids, but come on the Steam Forward podcast. We're extremely grateful. Pastor Linda speaks of you in such high regards. And she's like, she's the definition of Steam. You need her. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for the work that you do educating our children, especially in this state. It is more important than ever. You are quite literally doing the Lord's work. So we're doing our best, but I really appreciate that. Um, so that is it for this podcast. And as always, there's two sponsors that we like to thank, and that is Trinity Church and the Children's Trust. And don't forget, there are three ways in which you can watch or listen to this podcast. If you like to watch us, just follow us on YouTube. If you like to listen, just follow us on Apple and Spotify. Remember, this is the STEAM Forward Podcast. See you guys next week. Yes.